This week on Broadway for Sunday, March 11, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Uh, welcome back from, uh, you were in Cincinnati, weren't you, last week? Yeah, uh, at CCM, seeing their production of Jesus Christ Superstar. And Jesus Christ was a good. Um, it, uh, I tell you, <laughs> these kids are really amazing. Um, and uh, I do think in the years to come, you are going to hear from Bryce Baxter, Stavros Kumbaras, Jordan Miller, Alex Stone, Keaton Whitaker, and uh, Kiara Elise Harris. Now, in fact, you've already heard from Keaton Whitaker because um, way back, well, not so much way back when, but um, she was um, actually... Um, um, on Broadway, um, playing Frederica in a little night music, uh, that oh. revival. So, uh, <clears throat> so she'll come back, I assure you, as they all, uh, will show up on Broadway. So many CCM performers have like Betsy Wolf and waitress and Ashley Brown and Mary Poppins and, uh, Christy Altamara and Anastasia. So great school. They do wonderful work and I'm uh, very glad to go there. You had some divine intervention to help you get out on what that weather last week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I was very fortunate to get in and out, so, uh, but it did happen. Yeah, thanks. All right. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest returning for a second time on Broadway Radio. Deborah Grace Weiner is with us. Uh, Deborah is doing a uh, new classic American songbook series at Fine Science 54 Below. She is uh, artistic directing this thing and producing it. Uh, we have one coming up on March 27th uh, as a tribute to Rogers and Hart. You took advantage of me. Deborah, thanks for getting about a Sunday morning and talking with us. Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. So tell us, uh, what are we going to see on March 27th down at Feinstein's 54 Below? Well, uh, it's a, the, the show is about, it's called Rogers and Hart on Love. You took advantage of me. And um, Rogers and Hart are among my very, very, very favorite writers in the American Songbook because what they were doing uh, in their youthful state was kind of fresh and irreverent, and it's so contemporary because, as I say, excruciating romantic conflict never goes out of style. <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> You know, they they, um, they really, it's so different from certainly anything Rogers did later with Hammerstein, which is wonderful in its own way. But they are, they're, Rogers and Hart um, is so smart and so, uh, they're really products of the Jazz Age. And the Jazz Age was really modern, really contemporary. It was all mm-hmm. about, you know, women's freedom. And uh, it was like this little pocket of time 
when everybody kind of threw, I mean, look at, look at what happened in the jazz age. Women shed most of their underwear, right? And, um, uh, and, and, and were able to, to smoke and drink and enter the workplace and be sexually assertive and, um, you know, just like the guys. And it was this time of great freedom and, um, and it comes across as very contemporary. And then what happened was, you know, historically, World War II had, the Depression happened and World War II happened, and we kind of got into the, the father knows best, um, you know, era of, of, you know, the perfect life for a woman and being at home with the children and all of that kind of stuff, but not in the 20s and early 30s. And so what Rogers and Hart have to say about love is a lot. It could, be, it could have been written yesterday, and the music is fantastic. You know, uh, they're so clever and smart. So what we're doing on March 27th is just this breezy 70, 75-minute review with these great songs, and we have Debbie Boone and Christiane Knoll and Darius DeHaas. And John Otto, who was Rosemary Clooney's music director, is there with this swinging all-star trio of Jay Lenhart and Jim Saperito on drums. And, um, and I'm writing and hosting, and, and we're going to have a blast. I was thinking it's interesting that since we're in the middle of the Me Too movement, that you, the title that you chose for this, you took advantage of me. <laughs> yeah, wow, but maybe you could have Darius DeHaas sing it. Well, Darius Dahaz is singing it. <laughs> there you go. See, you guys are great. Why don't we, why don't we just all create this together? Um, yeah, it, it's um, it, the, the idea of it's their idea of love is not. Oh, I mean, certainly Rogers and Hart have very romantic songs and very, um, very sentimental songs, but a lot of their take on it, and and when I say they. Obviously, it's Larry Hart who's providing the content as a lyricist. I mean, it's very ironic. It's very um, sophisticated. It's it's not oh let's there are those let's let's build a cottage for two kind of songs, but even those songs like uh, the Blue Room or something like that, there's a wistfulness about it. It's almost like somebody who's really unhappy or somebody who really has all those layers of irony, kind of reflecting on something that's that's wistful to be very sweet and very simple. Um, it comes from a very complicated place, even the simple songs. And um, that's what's fun about them. Okay. So this is a Sophie's Choice question, and that mm. is, if you Uh-oh. could meet either Rogers or Hart, <laughs> which one would you want to meet and talk to? Hart. I think because... I would like to meet Hart. Because he was a really complicated and interesting guy. And very, uh, from what I understand and from what I've read, um, he was very... Uh, uh, conflicted about who he was he was conflicted about his sexuality he was a poet of the heart uh oh of the heart uh and he um uh and he wouldn't chase me around the room right like i'm yeah i'm i'm being a little facetious there but uh no richard rogers is an absolute genius and um and uh and i think perhaps one of our greatest greatest american composers and um but if you had given me a choice of which one i'd like to sit in a room and have a conversation with uh first i would have to choose hart i think if there were a time machine which of their shows would you go back and see oh you're making it hard 
for me, Peter. Um, <laughs> that's my policy. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Can I avoid it? For now. You have to give us an answer by the end of the discussion. Oh, because, because the question – now, I'll, can I turn that question back on you? Because which one would I miss? I say, huh? About, about which, the, which of which of the Rogers and Hart shows? Would um, I like to see. I like, than any other? Would I like to see? Um, I, well, I, I, well, first of all, you can tell me which one you'd like to see. That's that, and, and then I'll and I'm going to give my equivocation on it. Okay, um, I think I'd go for Pal Joey because I'd like to see how the audience reacted to Pal Joey since mm. it was a, such a daring show. Um, because these two guys had such a wonderful reputation, and so many of their shows were uh, happy-go-lucky, and uh, it would be really Babes in Arms certainly was, and too many girls, and uh, I would like to see how the audience reacted to a tough show like Pal Joey. That's a great answer. See, that's a great answer, and intellectually, that would be my answer. I, because because historically, Pal Joey is so uh, important, and uh, and it's the culmination of Roger. Pal Joey is the culmination of Rogers and Hart's work in a um, in a meaningful theatrical, you know, and the development of Broadway. Um, so that you know, Babes in Arms, of course. But I would sort of posit that Rogers and Hart's songs. I love Rogers and Hart's songs, and and as we know, a lot of the shows that those songs came from mm. are undoable and probably today we would not find them that interesting or even maybe coherent at all because because in the style of the day a lot of those plots were just were just things that you could little ex, frothy excuses to hang a lot of fantastic songs on and have just enough plot to be entertaining for the audience I was doing a project some years ago, and I went to the Library of Congress uh, to see specifically what was salvageable from a lot of those early Rogers and Hart shows uh, to, to kind of fashion something mm. out of. And it was just, it was, it was kind of went into the realm of a comic, because I was going through script after script after script, and I just was turning pages going, there is nothing here that, well, um, that you could even, yeah. Speaking speaking of undoable, I think one show we'd all love to see is Billy Rose's Jumbo. <laughs> yes, because yes, there is there is that elephant problem. <laughs> exactly. What elephant? <laughs> what elephant? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, I have these kind of, you know, in in the line in the, in doing what I do, which is. Um, which is kind of um, I'm a I'm a theatrical writer and a playwright and a, and a sort of musical theater the American songbook, for lack of a better word, historian. And so I'm one of those people, like the kind of Rob Fishers and like that whole kind of the Robert Kibbles and whatever that that reconstructs things and and is always looking for other forms. Um, we I've had these I've had the jumbo conversation with lots of people going, hey, is there a way that we can put this on stage or is there a clever way around it? But there's that elephant that elephant is a big um deterrent but you and know yeah, i think musicals and mufti did it musicals and mufti at the york theater did it yeah i know did, did musicals and mufti do jumbo i missed that how did they do yeah. how, how did they how did they handle the elephant thing just in the york theater just pretending it was there that's all <laughs> <laughs> oh that's fun you yeah. know there's 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 got to be a way because that's that's one of the really more interesting ones. Um, I think that there, you know, the ones like Simple Simon and you know, and all of these shows, there a lot of them 
also were written, shall we say, at a different time. And in terms of, of sensitivity toward just about anybody in the world, uh, most of those things, they're just undoable. But well, the, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying, I, I just was reading the announcement that uh, Musicals Tonight is going to be closing down after their 100th show. And, oh, no. Yeah, and Mel, Mel Miller listed some of the more uh, interesting esoteric items, and one of them was Chi-Chi. Yeah. So talk that about Stuart Rogers' art. Yeah. <laughs> I read the script for Chi-Chi. Yeah. I'll tell you, it was, it was eye-opening. You get to page one, you just go, oh, no. And, well, you know, yes, I would imagine a, a musical about a eunuch would be a, a very <laughs> difficult. That's the show from What Did I Have I Don't Have Now is from, right? No? Oh, just, all right. Nevertheless, go on, go on. Um, well, you, but, but the point is that I think the Roger, but when you look at the number of Rogers and Hart songs that are just as songs, and the, the number of fabulous, fabulous songs that um, that are there to be sung and there to be put in different contexts for different concerts is enormous and probably oh I don't like to make these kinds of comparisons because they're all made up and probably baloney anyway but um, but if you but if you sort of pound for pound with some other uh, great songwriters of the American Songbook there's certainly just as many uh, spectacular A plus songs there. Uh, from these shows that you just can't really do or just are not really interesting to us. So I would kind of posit that Rodgers and Hart is almost enjoyed more in 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 sort of new configurations. Or well, you know, you, you've, ca- you've caused me to have a flashback. Excuse me. Uh, I remember uh, growing up and my parents had their record collection of people like Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Andy Williams, and the songs would be listed – uh, on the uh, you know liner notes or, or on the album itself, and it would say the title of the song. It's a beautiful song, and then it would say from the musical, mm. very warm for May or, or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, and you're like, what's that? You know, <laughs> right, uh, and right. it was so intriguing. It's true. Well, it's when you think of the of things that come later. Certainly, Rodgers and Hammerstein, but also there are other composers who have other shows where you say, where you just go, "Oh yeah, this comes from that. That comes from that." And there's sort of a natural connection. This is almost a lot of it. A lot of the Rodgers and Hart stuff is almost so divorced from from what their origins are that in in many cases the origins is almost a a sort of a historical curiosity. For people like us, but um, but but for most people, it it's it it's the songs that are in the four. It's not like uh, it's not like a lot of other composers, a lot of other um, songbooks. So um, it's it's great to have these things, and uh, you know, and I love creating shows. That's that's what I love to do the most. I love creating concerts out of out of the fabric of great songs, and. Um, um, and and uh, like I say, Rogers and Hart lends itself really to that. Let me ask you a question about you've studied the American Songbook and done deep dives on on the Rogers and Hearts that are out there. Uh, so you have a a, a very uh, wide knowledge of of them and their works. Are you seeing any parallels into? Uh, writers that are coming up these days, the Pascals and Pauls, the types of things that you would say, oh, they're they're following a similar path. That's a really great question, 
it, it's hard to make a comparison. I think they're wonderful writers writing today, the new theater music. Um, and, uh, and I think that probably most of those people are, are, are grounded in what came before them. I know certainly Lin-Manuel Miranda is grounded very much in traditional, into traditional musical theater. He knows his stuff. And I think like Pasek and Paul, their, their craft is really excellent. And, um, and I would imagine that they, are, that they are schooled in all of that because everything is a continuation for, 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 for anybody who studies their craft, right? Anything is, everything is built on what comes before. So what's interesting, going back to Rogers and Hart, is that even in, in those early days when you had Hart, the, 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 um, the hallmark of a Larry Hart song, again, is, you know, even something like The Blue Room, uh, where there's this wistfulness about this dream of we're going to have this little thing together and we're going to have, uh, you know, with little blue chairs, which I always find so touching because it's like it's a really sophisticated person making a wistful projection of something like a little blue chair, you know, and um, or you have something like you took advantage of me or a perfect example is I wish I were in love again, where you give every example of every excruciating thing <laughs> that happens when you're in love and then say, oh, I wish I were in love again. And um, and it's very layered. Well, so Dorothy Fields was an acolyte of Larry Hart, because some people don't know that Larry Hart and Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein, I think it was a little ahead of them, and Herbert Fields, who was Dorothy Fields' brother, he was friends with those guys. They were all like at Columbia University together, and, um, and Dorothy Fields actually dated Richard Rogers when they were teenagers for a little. They were sort of like teenage sweethearts, or, and uh-huh. they all hung out together. They were this sort of youthful group. And um, and so Dorothy was like the kid, was sort of like the kid sister, and um, and Herb Fields, her brother, was writing. He wrote a lot of those early Rogers and Hart shows that we're that we're dissing right now in terms of what the scripts are like. But Dorothy Fields worshipped the uh, the craft and the genius of Larry Hart, and she modeled herself on him when she started writing, which was you know really just just after. That I mean, Larry Hart was very young, but they already started to be be a thing, and so she used to talk about later in life how some of her lyrics just just imitated Larry Hart. That's where she got her groove from. Mm. So I would you can make a sort of a case that Larry Hart. There's a through line from like Larry Hart to Dorothy Fields, and and then every every woman songwriter really, I think, still till today, stands on the shoulders of Dorothy Fields and, uh, and Carolyn Lee and those kind of pioneer, song, those pioneer women songwriters. So that's a case where you see things going through just by virtue of what Dorothy Fields, what, what paths she, she blazed, for, what trails she blazed for that. But also the Larry Hart thing goes from Larry Hart to Dorothy Fields, Dorothy Fields to Carolyn Lee, who was a generation later. And Carolyn Lee, of course, wrote all those big hit songs, a lot of them with Cy Coleman, that Sinatra recorded and Tony Bennett, like Witchcraft and The Best is Yet to Come. And also very complicated things like It Amazes Me. Uh, and, uh, and I think of Carolyn Lee as Dorothy Fields run through psychoanalysis. Uh-huh. She was a generation later <laughs> in the 50s. Right, and so I would you could you could sort of make a case that Larry Hart is sort of the the the, the motherload of that line of 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 smart 
clever, intellectual, sort of complicated, uh, and racy. These songs are really racy, <laughs> the Rodgers and Hart songs. It's it's like it was. It's a little bit like pre-code Hollywood, which is another reason we're having fun with this, putting this together for the 27th, because um, you couldn't. I mean, a lot of those lyrics had to be cleaned up, and uh, like Bewitched bothered it'd be. Sure, I mean, sure. horizontal, horizontally speaking, he's at his very best. Mm-hmm. Has other lines. So when you listen to Ella Fitzgerald's recordings, uh, or any, almost anybody's recordings of these songs from the 50s or mm-hmm. from the 40s, uh, whatever. Um, you you hear alternate lyrics, mm. and it's funny because Christiane Knoll, who's in our show, was just we, she's going to sing "Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered," and we were having this conversation, and she had been doing a lot of symphony dates, and her charts had other lyrics. And we were explaining, we were talking about these original lyrics. We went back to, of course, the, you know, the Holy Grail, which is Robert Kimball's complete lyrics of uh, Lored's Heart, and looking at what these original lyrics were. And we were talking about the fact that even now, when you go do symphonies and things like that in certain places, um, it's not acceptable to sing the racier lyrics, and it, which is funny because they were written like in the 1920s and 30s. But it's to people like that kind of smoothed out thing. So... Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Deb, thank thank you so much for joining us. We didn't talk. We this is a series, which the first one is March twenty seventh. You took advantage of me, Rogers and Hart on love. Uh, the second part in the series is a Jerome Robbins Centennial concert on May eighth, and the third part is on June seventeenth. Till there was you, a celebration of Barbara Cook, uh, directed by Mark Waldrop. So uh, maybe we'll have yeah. you all back on, and we'll talk about those when they roll around. Thank you so much for joining us on. Broadway Radio, really appreciate it. Thank you, and I just, I just want to say that, I, yeah, I'm thrilled to be bringing this series to Feinstein's 54 Below. This is a new affiliation for me, and, um, and this is something brand new for them. Uh, and also that Kathleen Marshall is, um, is, is directing the uh, Jerome Robbins Centennial Concert. But yeah, this is a really thrilling thing. We're going to have an absolute blast, and we have uh, everybody in the traveling carnival from Broadway is coming to work with <laughs> us there. So it's a brand new, it's a brand new thing. And thank you guys for having me on. No more pain, no more strain. Now I'm sane, but I would rather be Gaga, the pulled-out fur of cat and cur, the fine mismating of him and her. I've learned my lesson, but I wish I were in love again. The furtive sigh, the blackened eye, the words I love you till the day I die, the self-deception that believes the lie. I wish I were in love again. When love congeals, it soon reveals the faint aroma of performing seals, the double crossing of a pair of heels. I wish I were in love again. Section. Peter, you got over to the Duke on 42nd to see Hello from the Children of Planet Earth. Uh, So tell us about that. Well, it's a a strange play. Um, I mean, we have to admit that many men, uh, you should pardon the expression, get off while fantasizing about little women. But in this play by Don Mugin, uh, William ejaculates while reading Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Now, uh, (laughs) that may sound extraordinarily strange, especially for a 30-something aerospace engineer, as he is by trade. But uh, ironically enough, when the playwright explains why that happens, you buy it. 
it's uh, so this is a play that takes a lot of risks and uh, thanks to the playwrights realm which is on uh, using the duke theater on 42nd street you will find this uh, a play that will pretty much fascinate you i i will say that there is a problem with it for me and that is that um we do hear from a satellite yes a satellite yes in space a satellite in space talks to us and there are these little divertissements while the satellite tells us what's going on in in this case her life um now this is actually <clears throat> based on a on a real um satellite that um <laughs> has been flying around and that's the voyager voyager one in fact she is not called that in the program uh they want that i guess to be a bit of a surprise which i'm spoiling here uh the character is actually named the farthest explorer in the universe and nothing against the actress who's playing her Olivia Aguma is doing a wonderful job, but her interludes, to me, come across as unnecessary interruptions. I mean, occasionally she comes in with a good line like, life on Earth is the space between catastrophes. But um, it, it, it really, <sighs> I wish it wasn't there, because I'm much more interested in the story about William and his uh, experiences with Betsy and Shoshana. Now, they are lesbian lovers. And they want a child. And 17 years ago, Betsy knew William and says, you know, I think you'd be a great sperm donor. Now, there's a bit of a problem there, too, for me, because she hasn't seen him in 17 years. And, you know, maybe he's changed dramatically. I mean, uh, to, to, he's a virtual stranger. But she knew him when and she figured that he was a good guy then. And, you know, his sperm obviously isn't going to be much different from 17 years. So why not um, have it happen? So she's already 37. And, you know, if there's anything any adult learns, it's that time goes faster as the years go on. So they have no time to lose. And there's a, a good deal of interplay between um, – <clears throat> Among the three people, I should say, because, you know, because Betsy and uh, William have had this relationship in the past, Shoshana feels like the odd man out. And so she tries to ingratiate herself in the conversation and make it seem as if she's known him all along, too, so that they can all, you know, get along as a unit. But it, she is sort of first forcing her way in because these two people have a history and she is part of that history. So there are a few shorthand things that they have that she's no part of. So that part of the play um, interested me a good deal in the dynamics there. I will say this, that um, you can tell by the end of the play that the playwright was fascinated with the word heartbeat. And the word heartbeat turns out to be an important ingredient in both situations involving the satellite as well as the um, the lesbian couple. So at the end, it's very satisfying to see what the playwright was getting at. Um, it comes out of the blue, but in a way it fits very, very well. And you do indeed say, ah, ah, yes, okay, now I get it. And even if you're a little bit confused before, you are there for the ride involving uh, the three people. So that's what interests me most. Uh, I, I will say that there's uh, some comic relief uh, but frankly, I think it's a relief when the comic relief guy is not there because I didn't like him. I don't mean the actor. Uh, he was quite fine. But um, 
It's the type of comic relief you used to get from Cosmo Kramer on Seinfeld. Um, and considering what Michael Richards has become, who needs to be reminded of him? But that's another story. But um, I, I felt that um, his character wasn't as necessary as the other three. So um, so that bothered me a bit. But still, this is a playwright who is worth watching. And um, I, I do believe that um, anybody who can do what he did at the end of the play with the word heartbeat, uh, he, if he knows enough to save the best for last, then he's a playwright who may very well last. All right. So uh, that's Hello from the Children of Planet Earth at the, play, at the Duke on 42nd produced by the Playwrights Realm. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you and Peter both got a chance to go see A Letter to Harvey Milk, so why don't you start us off with that? Yes, I guess uh, further west on 42nd Street, uh, we saw A Letter to Harvey Milk at Theater Row. Uh, this is a musical based on a short story by Leslie Newman, and apparently it won a Richard Rogers Award uh, when it was done. Uh, it was done some years ago at Nymph, and it won a Richard Rogers Award. So I guess that means that obviously some people liked it a lot better than I did. Um, at Nymph, by the way, it had the cast included Leslie Kritzer, Jeff Keller, and Brandon Uranowitz. Um, so that that's kind of heavy hitters. Uh, this the, the credits for this show maybe indicate um, some of the problem. It's lyrics by Ellen M. Schwartz, additional lyrics by Cheryl Stern, music by Laura. I. Kramer, book by Ellen M. Schwartz, Cheryl Stern, Laura I. Kramer, and Jerry James, and then based on that short story by Leslie Newman, as I mentioned. Um, the uh, uh, central characters are Harry Weinberg, a retired kosher butcher living in San Francisco in the mid-80s, and uh, he is a widower of seven years, um, although <laughs> uh, his wife... Uh, very much keeps popping up, uh, sometimes literally, uh, because we see her as a, well, a ghost or a spirit or his his memory of her. And she's very much a part of the picture. And her name is Franny. Uh, and she uh, is there to exhort him uh, to, to do various things or not do various things. But Harry seems very lost without her. And he, in order to give himself something to do. He winds up going to the senior center where he meets a young uh, lesbian Jewish woman named Barbara Katzef, who, uh, who really uh, pressures him or re really exhorts him to join her writing class. Uh, now, he is the only student we ever wind up seeing. I don't know if that's supposed to mean that uh, he's the one she, the only one she winds up getting. But um, he, he does agree to uh, to try to participate in her writing class and she gives him an assignment to write a letter to someone he knows and the person that he winds up writing a letter to is Harvey Milk the gay activist and politician who was assassinated uh, at City Hall in San Francisco by Dan White uh, the the whole horrendous episode with the, the, the Twinkie defense that, that, that I'm sure many of us remember. But uh, Harvey Milk was very much a uh, an early, uh, uh, well, at that time, gay rights activist. And we here we see this middle-aged kosher butcher, Harry, who, as far as we know, is not 
gay at all, as far as we know. And so uh, their relationship, as Harry starts to write about it and talk about it, seems very interesting. We're wondering what we're going to learn about that. Is it just a father? Was it just a father and son relationship is what it seems in the beginning? Or was there more to it? Um, And the relationship between Harry and Barbara, the writing teacher, is also interesting because Barbara really wants to hear and, and read Harry's stories of uh, his past because her own grandparents, uh, they really didn't want to talk about their Jewish heritage or their memories of the old country. So she's trying to fill in the blanks from him. Uh, but the um, style of this is is very earnest and the style of humor in it, I think, is very old style and one might say corny old style Jewish humor that a lot of the uh, content of the show is very sentimental and manipulative. Uh, The music and the lyrics are are quite simple. Uh, The lyrics rhyme, but often one syllable rhymes. And a lot there's a lot of lyrics that are very much on the nose, not 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 much subtext that you'll find here. Um, the I should mention the cast, uh, which which actually is really quite excellent. Harry's played by Adam Heller. Barbara is played by Julia K N I T E L Knittel, I suppose. Franny uh, Weinberg, the, the dead wife, is played by Cheryl Stern, one of the co-authors. Harvey Milk is Michael Bartoli, and then in other roles uh, we have Jeremy Greenbaum, Ori Krebs, and C J. Polakowski. Uh, there is a, a secret that Harry has, uh, perhaps not the one we might expect. It does eventually come out, uh, and I, I won't say any more about that, but that's something that the show bills to, even though you don't realize it's happening. I will say, just in general, that the Holocaust ends up figuring in this musical, which is, of course, uh, a very, very bold step. One has to be extremely careful uh, when dealing with the Holocaust on stage, and especially, I would say, in a, in a musical that basically has a light tone for, for most of its length. Um, Evan Pappas directed the show, and I think he did a, an excellent job of it, but that, that sequence is going to um, really hit a lot of people, I think, and, 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 and may turn off some people because of the fact that it just seems to come, uh, if not out of nowhere, it, it just, it's like suddenly we, we are in the Holocaust and, and, and that's going to, to uh, maybe upset and stir up a lot of emotions in, in audiences. Um, coincidentally, a couple of days after I saw a letter to Harvey Milk, I was on Staten Island for a production of Martin Sherman's play Bent, which is even more about the Holocaust and specifically the treatment of gays. Uh, homosexuals by the Nazis during the Holocaust and in the death camps. I went to see Bent at the same theater, Seaview Playwrights Theater, where I directed a a production of it in 1984. Uh, So that was kind of a a blast from the past for me to be in the same space, especially since it looks almost exactly the same. And... um, the person who played the role of Rudy when I directed it in 1984, Craig Stobling, directed this production. So I uh, 
I was very glad to uh, to be there. It, it, the, the memories were incredible, and also I think Bent is is quite an extraordinary play by Martin Sherman. Uh, if if any of our listeners have not seen it in any context, I urge you to see it if there's ever a production. Uh, in your vicinity. The, uh, unfortunately, there is a, a film version that is really not very good, but I guess the film uh, would, seeing the film would be better than not seeing it at all if that's, if that's your only option. Uh, and, and this was quite, quite a week because it hadn't actually occurred to me that I was going to be seeing um, two shows that dealt with the Holocaust in one week. It's, um, it's obviously something that uh, really, really hits you when it's dramatized in any way, uh, and so um, it it was a, a kind of a kind of a rough two days uh, <laughs> for me in that respect. But I, I'm not suggesting that uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that the Holocaust not be dramatized. I think it's vitally important that it keeps being written about and talked about and uh, shown on stage and film. So that was my that was my week, and I'd love to hear. Peter's thoughts about a letter to Harvey Milk, including uh, Peter. I'd I'd love to hear if you had seen it previously. No, I had not. But let me say this, Michael. If I hadn't seen this show, listening to what you just said, I would still want to go see it. Um, I think you made it sound very interesting, even though you didn't like it that much. Uh, <laughs> you did an excellent job of being um, intriguing in uh, saying what it's about. What appealed to me was when I heard that I was going to go see a show called The Letter to Harvey Milk, I assumed Harvey Milk was going to be part of the show and that it was going to be um, sent on him. So um, here I am watching this musical and waiting for him to show up and uh, you, you know and all that goes with that. And so it was really a, an enormous surprise to me to see that this was going to be a tender musical drama really between two people. Yes, there are other characters who are certainly important. But it's really the one-on-one -on -one, uh, interaction. And to see this relationship develop between Harry Weinberg and Barbara Katzif was terrific. And a lot of it had to do, yes, Evan Pappas directed beautifully. Um, there was a tone to it. There was a mood to it that I thought was really, really terrific. But more to the point, Adam Heller and Julia, whatever her last name, however it's pronounced, and Julia, you must tell us because – Tell us now, because the day will come when so many people know who you are, because she is magnificent beyond belief um, as this uh, teacher. Yes, that's a very good point, Michael. It didn't even occur to me that does she only have one student. But um, <laughs> I was so interested in their interaction. I thought they played off each other so, so well that um, I, I didn't even think of that. And I should have thought of that, but I didn't because I was so brought into their world and so concerned because this was a situation where they did have Conflict because they are from two different generations and they do have two different point of views on um, a certain element, which I don't want to give too much away. But my God, was I concerned about these people? I wanted them to to keep their friendship. It, it was it was certainly becoming much more of a friendship. And I mean, while he's substantially older than she, and it's also a case where you you wonder if there's going to be a romance. You have to wonder that. I mean, uh, is there going to be attempted romance? Um, you know, older men, younger younger woman. Um, so I was really at the edge of my seat on this show, and um, I, I thought it was tremendously successful. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. It didn't even occur to me, and I'm usually very sensitive about um, one word, um, one syllable lyrics at the end of lines. But 
I was drawn into this world and I was so glad to be there. And especially, I really do feel that this Julia Nidal, Canedal, I don't know, but yeah, we'll have whatever to it that. is, we're going to, we're going to hear from this lady because she is terrific. So, um, so I, I, ironically enough, Michael, I think you really made it sound very, very interesting. So um, let's see if our, our listeners attend a letter to Harvey Milk and uh, if they uh, see what you see and um, and like it less than I do. But uh, I, I hope people attend it because uh, it's a serious musical that I think deserves attention because – much like I was talking about the heartbeat in the previous show, what happens at the end of this show uh, really makes sense and uh, really packs a wallop in a very quiet way. So um, so I'm uh, very much in favor of a letter to Harvey Milk. Yeah, for what it's worth, I, I agree that – I certainly agree that about the performances, um, b- uh, both of those central performances. And uh, Adam Heller, I thought, did a beautiful job of uh, – I guess – Underplaying is maybe the, yes. the right word. Yeah, if he hadn't if he had not done that, I, I think it might have been much less palatable, but he did a beautiful job of that. And I and I do agree uh, that the character relationships are extremely interesting. To me, it was just some of the actual writing that I I guess I didn't appreciate as much as you did. Um, the the music and the lyrics and the line. This has the kind of uh, uh oh the 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 dead wife role of Franny Weinberg played by Cheryl Stern. Uh, she plays it very well in in that in the style that that she plays it in, which is, I guess you would say, very stereotypical older Jewish woman uh, with humor like she has a line uh, that goes something like, oh, you're a regular Shylock Holmes. Uh, so that's the kind of humor if you if you uh, if you respond to that, uh, the audience, uh, many of them seem to. So um, I can certainly see this. Uh, show dividing a lot of people and but I, I have no doubt that many people will respond to it as positively as Peter did. So let me pull back the curtain a little bit uh, for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we uh, record each Sunday morning, um, we, you know we have no idea what we're going to talk about until right before. And Michael and uh, Peter, said to me, oh, uh, you know, I I saw a, let, a letter to Harvey Milk, and I immediately thought, uh, oh, that must be the Andrew Lipper production, uh, the I Am Harvey Milk. Ah, this right, right, not, right. Yeah, 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 this yeah, is, yeah. Uh, this, and I was like, how did I miss Andrew Lipper has got a show? And this is not. This is two different things I just wanted to. I'm, I'm sure that if, uh, if I made that mental leap, uh, for a second that at least one person out there also made that mental leap. And I wanted to point out these are two totally different things. This is not the Lipper production of I Am Harvey Milk, which is different than a letter to Harvey Milk. So, and just uh, to clarify, as as Peter pretty much did, Harvey Milk is a character, but I would say very much a secondary character. So it's the, the show is not primarily about him or even about his relationship with Harry, but uh, it's it's used as part of the historical context of uh, well Jewishness and gayness. I, I guess uh, is 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 the subject matter here and how these characters deal with it. 
I should have been more clear on that because I said, you know, I kept waiting for him to show up, you know, but my point uh, <laughs> should have been, yes, he does show up. So I apologize for that. But uh, he, he is so tangential to the action that um, it, it, it's <laughs> I, I, I wonder about this title. I do, um, because yeah. I wonder if people are going to think the same thing I did going in, feeling it's going to be a, a show about him more than anything else. So uh, and yet the subtlety of the title is very effective, too. So I, I, if I were writing the show, I don't know if I would keep it or, or discard it. So it's it's a real conundrum is a puzzlement. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's move forward into uh, another review here. Peter, you got a chance to see the new group's production of Good for Auto at the uh, Alex Griffin Jewelbox Theater on Theater Row. So uh, tell us about that. Well, this is um, a play from a playwright that um, we haven't heard very much from in in a while, and uh, that's David Rabe, who made a big sensation back in the 70s. Um, with Sticks and Bones, which uh, was much acclaimed and um, even got a TV production. (laughs) That's another story in itself. Um, But here he's dealing with um, psychiatrists, uh, people who are treating a whole group of people and uh, who um, have, well, they, they have a lot of problems, needless to say. So one – I find it interesting that one is known as Evangeline and the other is Dr. Michaels. Now, um, so why don't we hear Evangeline's last name and why um, – that, that I, I think there's a statement that's being made there. But anyway, um, they are played by the husband and wife team of um, Amy Madigan and Ed Harris. And I think it's really quite wonderful how they keep on coming back to these uh, small off-Broadway venues. Um, and uh, and they're both quite terrific in it. But, you know, here we are with um, one person after another coming in and telling of their problems. And we have quite a cast here, quite a cast indeed, and not only with those two, but also Marklin Baker shows up. And he has a hamster named Otto. And the hamster's uh, not doing well at the moment, and he's really concerned about the life of the hamster. Now, that might sound ludicrous. I'm, I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if anybody who just heard me say that sentence laughed out loud, because really, a hamster. But you know, when you're when you have problems, and this is your essentially your best friend, uh, it, 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 and Marklin Baker really, really makes it seem as if it's his own life and death that's at stake. Uh, here and um, so, but also we have F. Murray Abraham uh, in the play. We also have Rhea Perlman in the play. So this is really, you know, quite a cast, and everybody has problems, especially Rhea Perlman, who has um, a daughter, a uh, twelve-year-old daughter who's named Franny. And wow, uh, I will say that this Riley McDonald, who has been a Matilda, by the way, a Matilda in Matilda. Uh, is magnificent, especially in the second act when she has a breakdown. I hope you'll stay for the second act because there is no question that this is a meandering play. One person comes in after the other, after the other, after the other, and um, it's very long. It's three hours long, and it's very easy to say, uh, you know, I've had enough after an hour and a half um, of these people's problems. But 
if you are inclined to leave, um, I'm going to say don't because you have to see this Riley McDonald giving one of the finest performances of the season. So, um, so yeah, a little long, a little overwritten. Um, you, I get the impression that you can uh, actually get seats on the stage because uh, there certainly were a lot of people up there who weren't used. And every type of problem that you can find um, in life does show up here and there. And the psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Michaels, really tries very hard, very hard to use music therapy. So you're going to hear a lot of songs that you haven't heard in a long, long time. So a lot of colorful characters, a lot of problems – And what's wonderful is nobody's problem is played for comedy in the worst sense of the word. There are some funny moments, but the laughter is few and far between here. And that's a good thing because it would be very easy to mock these tortured souls. And that isn't what's on the mind of David Rabe at all. He is sympathetic to everything that's going on here. And I think you will be drawn into a story or two, but I won't be surprised if you don't get involved in everybody's story because there are just too many of them. And one of the other points made is that having this job is not an easy thing at all, um, listening to people's problems. I don't know if you know the Bruce J. Friedman story, Black Angels, in which uh, a man buys a house and he needs a lot of work done. And... um, workmen show up and um, so anyway he says yeah I need my uh, garden tended to how much and uh, he says two dollars an hour wow two dollars an hour yeah great okay Um, I I need a wall built here how much will it be yeah one dollar an hour really oh my god in the meantime his marriage is falling apart he loses his job he's really in terrible shape and uh, he says to the guy listen can you sit down and talk with me I I, I need to talk to somebody I really have a lot of problems and the guy says yeah that'll be forty dollars an hour the implication being that listening to somebody's problems is really harder work than building walls tending gardens plastering all that kind of stuff it's much harder. And this play does that. It makes you realize that listening to people's problems can really drive you crazy. And there's a lot of craziness that comes out, both in Evangeline and Dr. Michaels. So uh, you'll see that happen as well. So a challenging evening in the sense of three hours, but um, many rewards can be found in here in the middle of a lot of overwritten scenes. All right, uh, and possibly uh, you're going to get the nominators for the Theater World Awards to see this uh, show. Well, um, you know, I can't do anything with Riley McDonald because she's been in Matilda already and oh, played that's with. Right. Uh, you mentioned that. Some, that's yeah, right. so I so I can't do anything uh, there. Uh, though I uh, believe me, as she was performing, I was looking at my playbill saying, "Oh, please let this be her debut," because um, <laughs> I, I certainly that's what we do with the Theatre World Awards yeah. if people aren't familiar with them. Um, but uh, it, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid not. You know. Um, uh, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Uh, and uh, But boy, did she impress me in this show. And I mean, obviously, she's a kid, you know, so I would uh, I would have loved to have seen her as Matilda. I bet she was sensational because some of the Matildas I did see, I didn't think were sensational. So uh, so I bet she was wonderful, but she's certainly wonderful here. Was she one of the original Matildas? I don't think so, because the name isn't familiar to me. 
Um, so well, then, I, uh, you know, not to, I'm sure you've thought of this, but could I you know. not argue that, that she wasn't really reviewable? I know, I know. <laughs> that is, that is a flaw in the system, isn't it? You know, I mean, well, it, it, um, <laughs> good look at it as a flaw. Or not. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it is, it, it is, it is difficult because so many times we, we haven't seen people, uh, we're not often invited back to see, uh, right. shows. Um, so, so that is a problem I will admit. So, uh, but. You know, you've already made your Broadway debut in a title role in a musical. We really can't say that this is um, your debut. So, so yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. You sometimes the Riley are... will get other awards as time goes I'm, on. It sounds like she is headed for that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, before we wrap up for the morning, uh, I wanted to... Uh, see if either one of you had an opinion on what's happening with this Rocktopia over at coming to the Broadway uh, Theater, which is a rock and roll concert with a symphony orchestra that uh, has uh, a little scandal this week that they don't they don't, they're not under equity contract and the chorus members are making two hundred and change a week. Uh, do you have anything any any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I completely miss that. And second of all, I I guess you can maybe give us uh, in a nutshell how that's even conceivably possible. Well, it's not covered under equity contract because it's not a book. It's not a book player musical. So it should be uh, – the argument is is that it should be covered under AGVA or one of the other unions um, or, um, where the chorus would be and, – and the performers would be covered under something else. It's in the Broadway theater, but it's not a book musical or book play, so it just doesn't have equity jurisdiction, although they're trying to seem to work out something with equity, but – there's a lot of back and forth with the producers in equity this week. Um, the They have 35-person chorus. They held auditions in New York for chorus members. Um, and the thing going around is that it's uh, these people are making about $200 a week uh, to be in this Broadway sh- uh, show in a Broadway theater, the Broadway theater. Well, um in the past, hasn't the venue always trumped everything else? And uh, I mean, it's certainly not the f- first show of that type that's played on Broadway. Uh, what is the? Do we know of any precedent? Uh, no, there's a lot of talk back and forth about it. You know, especially in the recent um, in the recent past, the Illusionists was the Illusionists covered under Equity contract. Uh, uh, is Bruce Springsteen a member of Equity? We don't know it. Mm, yeah, uh, you know, is C- Kristen Chenoweth had a concert on Broadway last year where they covered under Broadway contract? Idina Menzel as well. So there's lots of concerts on in Broadway theaters, right? Uh, and have they been covered? Or have everybody been covered under an Actors Equity contract? They're not really actors. They're chorus members singing songs, not as characters, not performing. Uh, right, right. Scenes right. or things like that. All right, James, maybe you can answer this. I mean, I, I was always surprised that non-equity tours went out and were playing in various venues. Are the rules different for the road than they are for Broadway, that non-equity tours can play? 
Well, there's been controversy over that too, as as uh, I'm sure you know, Peter. And 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 I guess there have been more non-equity tours. And then uh, for years, wasn't it that uh, the the first tour would be equity, and then maybe subsequent ones would not? Seemingly, uh, the what's happened is based upon the producer. So if the producer was was engaged in contracts with uh, Actors Equity. Uh, then the actors would be uh, contracted under equity. And then after that, it went to an organization like a Troika, which I believe at the time had no producers that were members of the Broadway League or uh, or engaged in equity contracts previously. So they were able to skirt this thing, even though it they they might have been a union house, but it's just a what's called a four-wall rental. So the the company that was producing it just would come in and rent the theater and put on the show. So um, the, the, oh, okay, but I'm a, reminded of what Tevya said. You know, one little <laughs> time I pulled out a thread, and where is it led? I mean, yes. is one of the reasons this is happening because it's been able to happen on the road? I mean, these people are obviously renting four walls too, then, right? Yes, and that's their argument: is that yeah. this is not a jurisdiction of equity and. I don't really think that equity's got a leg to stand on. Now, if AGVA or one of the other, the Variety Arts uh, Union or uh, the uh, uh, um, Musical Artists Union were to come in that cover concerts and uh, other types of things, but they're not as strong as equity, if they were to come in and demand a contract, I don't know what would happen. And I'm surprised that that has not happened, but uh, it seemingly hasn't. and I don't think that equity can really shut down this show. Uh, well, there's another issue here, too, and that is the fact that uh, we are definitely living in an age where a lot of people are sacrificing a lot of money to be uh, seen. I mean, we certainly know that there are yes. festivals where you have to pay mm. to have your show done. It's not a case that a producer takes it, raises the money, and puts on your show. There are festivals all over town where you do your own producing. You have mm-hmm. to put up the money and you have to do it. This is not just limited to festivals. There are other places around town where – um, glorified readings are being done with uh, people paying. There are many, many children's programs now around the country where parents have to pony up the money if their kid is going to be in the program. So I think this is uh, just an extension of that, that people are willing to get 200 whatever it is dollars a week to appear on Broadway, that the credit is worth it for them, saying, I appeared on Broadway. And I'm sure many of these people are going to have nightclub engagements or whatever they're going to do, and straight from Broadway and uh, starring on Broadway et cetera, et cetera, and it's worth the money to them. I am not saying any of this is right. I am only saying I'm not surprising that this has happened given the fact that so many other things that used to happen, the producers used to produce shows, that indeed uh, you didn't have to uh, put up your own money and do it yourself, that uh, this is a logical extension of that. Yeah, this I think this could get very, very dicey because it really, uh, I mean, I can see the argument on both sides, but Primarily, it's because of the the increase in shows on Broadway that normally would not have been in Broadway theaters and would have been elsewhere. Uh, so they, I can only imagine there are going to be more of them rather than less. Yeah, and um, you're saying that you can see both sides of it brings in Tevya once again because <laughs> <laughs> on one hand he's right, you're right too, you know. Yeah. So no, you are also right. <laughs> All right, you know he's right too. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, and uh, we talked about the Theater World Awards uh, for, a, for a minute there, uh, a couple of minutes ago. Um, are you, uh, both of you ready for this onslaught of uh, the end of March, April, May uh, thing where between the three of us we'll probably see 100 Broadway shows in the next two months? <laughs> well, yeah. And just to make it more more challenging, uh, two of them are two parters. Two parters, yeah. And not only two, yeah. Not only two parters was really hard. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Not only two parters, but long two parters. So. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I think uh, was it Angels that's got a seven p.m. start. I was very thankful for. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So good. So. Listeners, have mercy on us for we are doing, uh, serving our best for you to be in the late hours of every night to see Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you listen to finer podcasts will have This Week on Broadway. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about are in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So, Peter, did we get any answers to last week's trivia? Not a soul. No, the question was, what do Bye Jeeves, the girl who came to supper, legally blonde, love letters, lovely ladies, kind gentlemen, on your toes, ragtime rent, and Starlight Express have in common? And all of them had characters who had the Roman numeral three after their names. You know, <laughs> Cole, Cole House Walker Jr. Uh, the third, Benjamin Coffin the third, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I guarantee you, if you look up all those shows, you will find uh, a Roman numeral three after some character's name. So this week... What Tony-winning musical was so successful that Milton Bradley actually made a board game out of it? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Lives well, in my uh... house. It, it, it exists. It lives in my house. <laughs> if you have an answer to that, email us at triviabroadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 What am I bewitched by?